and welcome back to the What The Fork podcast in association with Viper Goalkeeping. I've got a very, very special episode for you today as we discuss the career of one of my favourite managers in the whole of Scotland and a man who's currently having a tremendous season in charge of Livingston FC. Welcome to the show, David Martindale. How are you doing, David? Are you all right? I'm okay, yeah. Okay. We're out training this morning, a wee bit sunburnt. We're not used to having this sun. So, aye, all good, all good. And- I was thinking that the sun was on my back this morning when I was walking to their new house. We were just saying off sort of off air. I'm I'm busy trying to renovate a new house at the moment and the sun's like really out in Glasgow today, isn't it, in Livingston? I it's I think you're sitting about 10, 12, 13 degrees, something like that, but it feels like the summer. Getting the sun cream out, aye? Uh, I said the boys, honestly, the boys were running about with suntan lotion on the day. <laughs> um, so as we said in the, the intro to today's show, obviously I'll be covering your entire career in football, but we'll begin with the most recent stuff because Saturday's win, as we speak over Hamilton, that secured a, a top six finish heading into the split. How pleased are you with the achievement? Yeah, I think now you can sit back and you can reflect on the achievement. It was a wee bit, I didn't really want to talk about it too much before because it was still the opportunity that all things not going well, you potentially might have not finished in the top six. So didn't really want to talk too much about that before. But now that we've secured top six, that's back-to-back top six the last two years. So I think it's a incredible achievement for everyone connected to the football club. Yes, terrific, terrific. Um, many people, and, and, and rightly so, have pinpointed your appointment as manager as the reason for Livy's excellent displays throughout the season. But being the manager yourself, what do you pinpoint as the main reason for the team's outstanding season so far? I think there's been a, a lot of different variables that have changed. But what I will say is when Gary was here and I was the assistant manager, um, I think we were a wee bit unlucky. I don't think we were we were playing badly. We were playing, we were just getting the results, our performances slightly merited, to be honest. Then with Gary leaving, I think it there became a quick realisation of the squad about the situation we were currently in. I think we were sitting round about 10th, 11th in the league. I think we were actually bottom of the league at one point as well. So I think there was a realisation about how serious the situation is. And I'm a great believer in that I've signed every single one of the players in that dressing room. So I do believe that I got a wee bit more out of them because of I've got that emotional attachment with the boys because I'm the one that they met at the club originally. I'm the one that recruited them. I'm the one that signed them. So I think that got a wee bit more out of them. I've also introduced psychology sessions. So we work a lot on the psychology of football, the psychology of the individual. So it was a host of two or three different variables. It all probably gave us marginal gains, which then increased the, the collective getting stronger, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. You're touching the, the psychology stuff there. That's something I find really, really interesting. Um, I spoke to Sam Allardyce, we're not going on a year ago now, and he's obviously someone who believes in it an awful lot. Um, how important do you think that sort of side of football is these days? Um, I, I was actually on a call last night with the IFA, they're doing their pro licence and I was a guest on the IFA course and it was a lot of psychology based and I've asked this question last night. It's hard to quantify it, to put it into a significant like a, a percentage, but I did, I gave it a wee bit of thought and I think I think there's, you could maybe allocate 20-25% of psychology into performance and I used, used that old analogy last night that 35% of goals come from set plays, but you don't allocate 35% of your training time to set plays, which I find strange, and I try to do a lot more of that. But 
if you then strip that back and suggest that psychology plays 20, 25% of performance, I don't think clubs spend any time on psychology. Now, we'll all use terminology, we'll all use buzzwords as coaches that we hope sends messages to players, but we don't spend any physical time talking about the mental well-being or the mental resilience of football players. So we allocate roughly, or I allocate two hours, two hours a week to psychology sessions with a, a clinical psychologist who's involved in sport, and that's Jags Basra, Dr. Jags Basra, and she plays a big part in that as well. Fantastic. I find it incredibly interesting. I think it's something that's played more and more part of role in, in modern day football. And I think um, the results nine times out of 10 for me always are positive as opposed to a negative in most cases, I think by implementing that. So interesting to know. Um, going back to obviously the end of the season, as we're speaking at the moment, which is the 16th of March. Um, what are you looking for from your team as you head into the end of the season and, and the split? Well, the challenge I put to the boys now that we're secure top six, we're sitting fifth in the top six. I think we have got to... Uh, looking at a minimum of finishing fifth in the Premier League. I think if we drop down to six, it would be disappointing, although you would probably reflect and still take a bit of the positives from finishing the top six. We're sitting fifth just now, so I think fifth's got to be the aim, albeit we've got to be pushing to try and look at finishing fourth. Finishing fourth gets you obviously a European slot, and finishing fifth potentially could get you a European slot if the league winners were to win the Scottish Cup. So I think we've got to be looking collectively as a squad at a minimum fifth place. Yeah. Um, so as we said before, we're going to venture back sort of way beyond 2021 and, and go back to your childhood, your upbringing. Um, born in Glasgow, I believe you grew up in Govan. Am I right with that? Yeah, yeah, grew up in Glasgow. I think we moved out with the Glasgow overspill. When I was maybe seven, eight year old, something along the lines, we moved to Livingston and that was a, a city or a town that had been purposely built to take occupant residency Glasgow. So you came into Livingston, so there's a lot of people from Glasgow now staying in Livingston. But I spent every summer holiday, every Easter holiday, I spent that going back through Glasgow to see my grand, see my aunties and my cousins. So I spent probably like maybe the next four or five years of doing that, always ending back up in Glasgow in the summer holidays and the Easter holidays and stuff like that. So did you come from, probably a daft question here, because I think everyone in Glasgow does, but did you come from a football and supporting family, a football mad family? Yeah, yeah we were being governed, most of my cousins, my uncles, my dad, they were all big Rangers supporters. My dad worked in the governed shipyard, the shipyard industry, so I think a lot of people around the area had done that at the time. So I came from the a Rangers supporting background. What are your earliest memories of, um, it sounds cheesy, but like falling in love with football then? Just watching World Cups. I can remember being a youngster and watching World Cups. I, I can't honestly remember watching too much Scottish football. You'd look at the cup finals, but sitting up, watching match of the day, St. and Greavesy, going, that's how far you're going back. And they were the big, if I look back, St. and Greavesy's probably one of the, the big programmes at the time that you used to watch on a Saturday afternoon. If you were lucky enough, your dad let you stay up on a Saturday night and watch sports scene or match of the day. I can't remember what it was called at the time. But the World Cup probably were the big ones for me because you were getting introduced to like, Brazil. So a, a young boy for Glasgow, a young boy for Scotland, and you're looking at Zico. I can remember growing up trying to emulate Zico, Socrates, all these like Brazilian players. That, 
played football so much differently to how we seen football in Scotland. The way they manipulated the ball was unbelievable. So I think the World Cups were the big ones for me that stuck out in my head. Did you, in terms of a club team, did you follow your family and go Rangers or, or did you have kind of more players that you gravitated towards? Yeah, it's probably a wee bit of both. Um, when Sir Alex, I can't remember what age I was when Sir Alex went down to Man United, but Sir Alex is a govern man. Yeah. And we kind of started gravitating towards Manchester United, who at that point were probably a lot more gra- glamorous in Scottish football. So I always watched Rangers, but I would say I've always been a football fan. I've always Manchester United, but Rangers, but during the Brendan Rodgers era at Celtic, I enjoyed watching Celtic and I thought they played some fantastic football. Dick Advocate, Graeme Soonis, stays at Rangers were fantastic. So as much as saying I probably watched Rangers and Man United when I was younger, I would I'd say I was a football fan. I remember Tottenham Hotspur, Ozzy Ardiles, these are the things that stick in my head when I was growing up when I was a wee bit younger. Glenn Hoddle, people like that. So I was probably, yes, you were a football fan, but I would say, yeah, sorry, Yes, you supported clubs, but I would say I was a big supporter of football in general. Yeah, you get a lot of people that do that sort of stuff. I think, you know, uh, my girlfriend's brothers very much gravitate towards Cristiano Ronaldo when he was growing up, so he went eventually with Manchester United. Unfortunately, that was left with Sunderland from birth, <laughs> so I didn't have much choice. You're a diehard. But I feel very similar to myself. I'm sitting at Livingston now, but if I wasn't involved in football, I'd probably be a Rangers supporter. But yeah. That doesn't mean I would just attend Rangers games because if, but at the time, if I wasn't involved in football and Celtic were, I thought Celtic under Brendan Rodgers was fantastic. So I would probably have found myself going and watching Celtic games. There's probably Rangers supporters sitting here saying, well, you're not a Rangers supporter. But that was my club growing up. And yeah. I love to see Rangers do well, obviously, when it's not against me. But I'm a, I enjoy good football. I enjoy watching football. And... As you grow a wee bit older, I think your allegiances kind of drop a little bit and you actually take football for what it was. And you, you actually start to enjoy watching games of football. Yeah, you definitely do. I mean, obviously, my, one of my other jobs is I work for Middlesbrough Women and I'll support Middlesbrough Women over Sunderland Women. Yet I've brought up a Sunderland fan, so I totally know where you're coming from with that. Yeah, you learn to have friends within football and you want to do well with your friends, don't you? Yeah, I think football's a, it's an international sport that just unites all different levels of people. It doesn't matter who you are, where you grew up. I think you could go and sit in any pub in Europe or in the world and you could get chatting to somebody over a pint or a bottle of beer about football. And yeah. the two years we tit it off. So that, for me, is a massive draw, draw with football. No matter where you go, you're on holiday, you end up sitting talking, talking to someone about football, somebody from a different country. And it's so easy to translate into different countries and different people just sitting talking about football so many players you can kind of have a link to your club and their club and and get in between absolutely um i remember street football i know a lot of kids prefer playing fifa and whatnot these days but i imagine with you being someone who went on to be a youth player and obviously a manager now um i played street football i had i always tried to be alan johnson funnily enough at Sunderland of all the players but who was the who was the hero for you who was the one that you pretended to be Probably Davy Cooper at the time, Davy Cooper, who was at Rangers, and then I think he moved on to Murrayville a wee bit later on. But Davy Cooper was always the one that I enjoyed watching. And there's a strange one, I've probably never told anybody this, but there was a player at Dungeon United I always liked watching when I was younger called Ralph Mullen. And 
I just always like watching him for some reason. But you obviously had your Aussie Arbelises, your Zico, and these types of people. But from probably a, a Scottish background, Kenny Douglas, Charlie Nicholas, you had all these the iconic Scottish players that were larger than life characters. As I grew up and got a wee bit older, then you're looking at Henrik Larson, Brian Loudrop, Paul Gascoigne, Ali McCoy. So there's been some fat, fantastic football players, but not just football players, characters within football that as growing up, you've followed different people over your time. Yeah, Ali's 100%. When you said the word character and great football player, I think there was a resonate with Ali McCoy, I think. And, uh, Paul Gascoigne. Yes, well, of course, Northeast man, a man who gravitates much like Bobby Robson across the Northeast divide. I think even Sunderland fans are quite quite fond of both. And I think, um, I think in football these days, you talk, I talk about it a lot. When I grew up, we played football in the street with our pals. We played against the different areas and the, the scheme that you stayed in. And yeah. Different schemes played against different schemes. Your foot, uh, your your local foot uh, primaries played against different primaries, and I think. You weren't getting coached as such, and you were learning your trade on the job. You were being creative. I think now, I think these personalities and these types of players are nearly coached out of them at pro youth level. These people are turning up four nights a week. They're getting tracksuits, their boots. Everything's laid in a plate for them. And I'm not so sure you would see Paul Gascoigne coming through a pro youth system now. I don't know if he would conform to that system. Paul would probably be seen as a a bad egg who causes trouble, opposed to such a creative genius who's good to have around the place. I don't yeah. know, I may be wrong there, but I just, I feel that it's getting coached out of players. It's overcoached now. And boys, boys are kind of stereotyped as if they've got to act a certain way. They've got to be a certain person to play in the pro youth system. Now, I might be wrong there, that's just my my take on it, but... I'm not so sure your Ali McCoy and your Paul Gascoigne would have made their way through the pro youth systems of today. And if they did, I'm not so sure they would have been the players they are or the players they were. Because yeah. I think it may have got coached. Some of the some of the the character may have been coached away from them. It's almost as if it's like a, a dangerous trait to have that kind of cheeky innocence almost in yeah. a way, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, I agree with you on that absolutely 100%. 100%. Um, when you were growing up, as it was, you've it's been talked about before that you end up being a youth team player at Rangers and at Motherwell. First and foremost, obviously, we'll discuss, I think, Rangers, because I think that's where you went first. How did your, your pathway towards getting into the youth systems kind of uh, come it, it along? Wasn't, I wouldn't, so what happened at the time, it was S-forms. So it was S-forms you used to sign. So it was Rangers in your local area. So Rangers had lots of different, probably, training camps all over and mm-hmm. lots of different teams. So I, I'd been playing, I think it was East Calder Colts I played with at the time, or it might have been Lithgow Rose, and the local Rangers scout for the areas came up and took me in, and I can remember training with all, like, I think Stephen Presley was there at the time, he came for Fife, and we were up at Dean's High School training, and Stephen would turn up with his blazer and his shirt and tie and all that on, because I think he'd been at the, they used to have the main training camp in Glasgow as well, where the elite, they had the elite players, coming, and then you had the local area. So I was in um, the West Lothian, training with Rangers in West Lothian on an S form. And then obviously I broke my leg playing pub football with my pals who were chatting my door on a Sunday morning to come and play with them. And again, that was probably 
over loyal at that point. I was all, 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 what was the most important thing in my life was my friends growing up. We were so loyal to each other. We grew up in the scheme and it was probably to my detriment, to be honest. But again, if I hadn't broke my, my leg, I've no doubt it would have been, I would have done, it would have been something else that stopped, probably stopped my progression, if I'm honest, because I was probably, had I misspent youth for want of a better word. With that experience though, I mean, obviously, I know a few players that are within, within Livingston themselves. Do you feel like having that experience yourself can help players who are maybe at that age? Obviously you talk about pro youth and the way that some players are brought up. Do you feel like you can hand that experience on that you had because the experience you had? Yeah, a little bit because I probably threw it all away. I'd have found a way to throw it all away because I don't think it was the most important thing in my life. And I think you get to a crucial stage in your life, probably between 14 and 18. Whereas if you want to go out to nightclubs, you want to go out to pubs, you want to go out drinking with your friends and you meet girls, I think you're at a, a very vulnerable age. And I probably gravitated more towards that than what I did football. So I think... Nowadays, you can I can help boys with that, but again, I had loads of people try to help me. You're throwing it all away. You're throwing it all away. But you think you know better, don't you? When you're younger, oh, you, yeah. think you, know, you think you know better. I can remember my my dad used to always say, "If I knew now, if I knew now know what I know now, then I wouldn't be here." And I, I used to remember saying, "Shut up, shut up." <laughs> But you know what? As you grow up, you actually really understand what he meant by that, and you wish you wish you'd listened to him better. At the time, you've got testosterone flying everywhere, and let's be honest, you think you know better than everybody else. Well, I did. I was one of them. I learned everything I've learned in life. I can honestly say I've learned the hard way. A hundred percent, I have learned the hard way. It's funny when you look back at that kind of age, I think across a few different avenues and me, myself, you look back and you think you knew everything at 18, 19. Turns out you don't, do you? Uh, <laughs> we're absolutely miles off it. Yeah, miles yeah. And I can I can remember things that people used to say to me that like I just spoke about there, that's an example. I say that to some of the younger players and I can see them in their heads saying, shut up, shut up. You've got to want to help yourself. And I was probably... Was probably really <clears throat> immature for my age, but I thought I was extremely mature for my age. You mm -hmm. think you know everything, but you actually know very, very little. So, and sadly, you only find out when you get to a certain age that that's the case, isn't it? But I think you, you talk about it with players, but the penny drops. It might drop with someone when they're a wee bit younger, 16, 17, 18. It might take other boys 24, 25. Probably in my case, if I'm honest, 32 year old, the penny dropped. Yeah, same here, actually, funnily enough. <laughs> the exact same age, yeah. 32, roughly around 32-year-old, the penny dropped. What are you doing? What are you doing? Must be one of those things. Must be that age. But um, before I move on to, obviously, your time at Livy and stuff like that, you had a bit of time at Motherwell as well, I think. As much as we're talking about, you know, you do feel like you know everything at 18, 19, and yeah, I very much felt like that as well. Um, now, at the age that you're at now, do you look back at any of the coaches or any of the, the people that were maybe not your immediate family or immediate friends at Rangers and Motherwell who gave you maybe some advice that you actually use now? Well, to be honest, no, because that I played, I, I got released for Rangers, broke my leg, and I went into Motherwell maybe 18 months later. And I played in a pro youth tournament throughout Paisley. I was like 20 grass parts, and I played in that tournament. And Motherwell came back to me and said, Look, we've got to sign you. 
we're wanting to sign you. My dad's like, right, we'll get you all signed up. Signed up, and I never went to one training session. My dad never had a car. I couldn't get, even get to Motherwell. And they were wanting me to leave my boys' club. And my boys' club at the time, were, I think it was on Lifco Rose. That was my boys' club who I was playing with. And I didn't want to leave my boys' club. So I played with Motherwell in this tournament through in Paisley. Signed up to go with them. But part of that was you had to leave your your, your youth team. And I never, used, never left my youth team. Because sort of changing then, didn't it? Because of probably insurance purposes and stuff yeah, like that. Sort of changing at that point. But my, we never even had a car as a family. So God knows how I was even going to get to training in Motherwell. But... These are, I never, I, see at that point in time, I didn't, I didn't give that a second thought. I just wanted to play football with my friends. And we yeah. were quite successful at that team. I never, looking back now, you think, God, like, what were you trying to do? What, what was your purpose? But I just took every day as it came and played football. Yeah. Sometimes yeah. The, the beautiful naivety, isn't it, of football, is that you sometimes just want to play football. It doesn't matter where it's at or what level. I've never ever seen it as a career progression. But I never ever seen it as not being a career. Also, I just don't think I don't think it was that clever when I was that younger, and I was I was probably too busy enjoying myself with life to give anything else really a second thought. So that's really looking back. It probably was really naive, really immature, but I didn't know that at the time. Very honest of you to say. Um... So as it was, then you, you dropped out of football in that way. Um, obviously, went on to, to other things, did other stuff. Did you ever see you coming back to football at any point when you sort of left football, say, six months after or so? Not really, but I was always in the local area. It always had a, a reputation of being one of the better football players. So as soon as my legs started healing, I had all my friends for different areas, different backgrounds. say, come and play with us, come and play with us, come and play with us. So it wasn't really anything that I thought, well, because I, I, I never went to see a physio once. I had my full full um, cast on, my full leg. And then when that came off, I got the half cast. And then when that came off, it's not anything I ever put any onus on getting back to playing football. It was just something that probably organically developed again once my leg was a bit stronger. People saying, come and play football, come and play football. And I just kind of fell back into playing football with people I knew from the local area. And how long did you play football for? Like, how long did you play with people in the local area? How, when did that stop? When did that stop? Probably till I was around 32 years old. 32, but what actually happened was that, so I would play Sunday morning pub league, and I think the, the team we had, we were, we were decent, we were very good. Don't get me wrong, standard debatable, but... We were unbeaten for about two years. We won every game, we won every cup because it was characters that were probably very like myself, could have went on and done something with their life in football if they probably had better guidance, for want of a better word, or they weren't as naive and immature. So it was a host that we had six, seven or eight years we supplemented with older players that could have done so much better in their careers. Obviously, they never. So we done well with that, and I progressed to... I used to play Saturday afternoon, which was a decent level, Saturday amateur afternoon, and then I'd play Sunday morning pub league and Sunday amateur afternoon. So I used to play three games over the weekend, and that kind of took up my life. But on a Saturday after your game, you went to the pub. On a Sunday after the game, you went to the pub. And this is kind of 
your social circle dramatically increases because you're, I'm playing with three different teams for the local areas that are all good football players, so you know a lot of people. We were very successful at the level we played football, and I used to get a lot of people saying, come and play me, come and try, come and play junior football, which is like fifth-tier Scottish football, for want of a better word. Come and play, and I, I was never really interested. I got arrested, arrested in April 2004, so I was 30 year old actually, 30 year old, April 2004, and I don't know, that was a kind of light bulb moment in my life where I had to change my life, I mean I got released from the police cells that weekend, I left, the amateur teams I were all with and I went to play junior football with probably better football players, but I went and done it for myself. Whereas previously, I probably played football to play football with my friends. Mm -hmm. So I went and played junior football, and I played junior football for about two and a half years before I got in prison. And then when I got released from prison in 2010, I would have been 36. I went back to play junior football again at a half decent level. And that's ultimately which led me into Livingston Football Club. Because you went to Harriet Watt as well, didn't you, when you came out? You went to do yeah. construction? Yeah, well, what I'd done was in 2000, I got arrested April 2004, and I got let out four days later on bail, and I enrolled at Harriet Watt. I, changed, I knew that in the police cells was the worst moments of my life, and I thought, I need to change my life. So I enrolled in Harriet Watt University in August 2004, I never got in prison till October 2006. So I was at Harriet Watt for roughly two years, two months. And I was actually playing for the university football team as well. And we were actually really successful. And we travelled around Britain playing against the cup final, the British University's cup finals. And I met a lot of different type of people who actually went on to have really good careers in professional football and who are still involved in professional football to this day. Obviously, the, the boys at uni were a lot younger than me. I would have been about 30, 31, 32, whereas the boys at university were generally around 21, 22, 23, something along the lines. So that actually helped me as well. And I was at university, played for Pumpherson Juniors, a team 50-year Scottish football, and played for the Herrick Watt University football team for two years, roughly two months before I got imprisoned on October 2006. So I think your your um, association with Livingston started 2014? 14. On like a, a part-time basis, so to speak. Yeah. Um, obviously, yeah, you were um, around Livingston as a football club, but I mean, it's hard to just walk into a football club. How did your yeah. association and become acquainted so, with them? One of my friends that I went to Broxburn Juniors, played with a few junior clubs when I got released, and I found myself at Broxburn who were a fairly, fairly well-run community club that had a lot of amateur teams, junior teams, and juvenile teams. So the junior team was really successful, and I signed with him, and one of the players was a boy called Bully McPhee, and I knew Bully for a few years. I knew him previously for 2004. I played with him at Pumverson. Bully worked with it's the charity partner of the football club. It's the West Lothian Youth Foundation. And Bully worked for the National Lottery, but he was seconded to the charity to help them get their charity up and running. Yeah. 
And Bully was in the football club on a daily basis. Their offices were in the football club. And a boy that was running the club, owner, stroke run, running the club at the time, was a guy called Neil Rankin. And the club were in a bit of trouble financially. They were in a bit of trouble. They just, the former chief executive was taking them to court. As a Sunderland fan, you'll know where I'm going with this. So upstairs was in chaos, for want of a better word. And Bully said, look, I've been speaking to Neil and Neil says you can come in and help out about the club if you want. So I had a couple of coffees with Neil. And Neil said, look, let me speak to John McGlynn, who's the manager, and see if I can get you in a couple of mornings a week. And we'll just take it for there. And that's what I've done. I probably volunteered for at the football club two years on a part-time basis. And then I'd my own building company at this point. I was doing new build construction, stuff like that, bespoke developments. And then... I came in and probably worked full-time for a year, eh, sorry, voluntary for a year. And then when we got promoted to the Scottish Championship, that's when the club sat down with me and said, look, we want to try and offer you a wee bit more money. Can you come in a wee bit longer? Um, and that's what I've done. And then when we went to the Premier League, the club said, right, we want to try and get you tied up into your contract. And that's kind of how I found my way into the club. Just volunteering to start with, but the only reason I, I got into the club is because the club were in major financial difficulty. And that's basically for want of a better word. I used to come in and I used to fix things at the stadium for them, put new boardroom floors down. We used to, used to help them out with the building company I had and all the, the tradesmen that I knew and my project management skills. I just helped them in and around the stadium as well as it was kind of probably I was doing a wee bit of that, but they were giving me a wee bit of coaching experience, so it probably probably worked for everybody. I'm a big fan of, um, there's been a few people I've spoke to from various different levels, sort of management, chairman, downwards, uh, clubs in Scotland, over my time doing this podcast over the past year. And you think I quite like, I think Hamilton Ackies are quite big on it, Livingston are quite big on it. Uh, there's a big community element where they will get people in to help, they will give people a chance. Um how thankful are you to, to Livingston for sort of getting you into the club and giving you that chance? It's unbelievable. Like I've now got, well, hopefully I've got a career in professional football, which I would never have had if it wasn't for Livingston Football Club. And I say, I say in most interviews or agents, whatever it is, I say I owe Livingston Football Club a lot more than what Livingston Football Club owe me. And it's in football until Livingston chat my door or come and speak to me in the office, John, the chief executive, or Robert, the chairman. Until they want me at this football club or don't want me at the football club, I'll always be here. I'm never going to walk away from Livingston Football Club unless John and Robert come and chat my door and tell me otherwise. The thing I quite like about it as well, I think it's not just giving you a chance. I sort of look back at some of the earlier articles when you first got involved with Livingston and yeah. a little bit of pressure from the local press, I would say, because of you know, past, um, really stuck by you, continue to do so. Um, how much did that mean to you as well? Not just that they give you a chance, but the back to you as well. To be honest, probably the first year or 18 months I was in the football club, um, I got a lot, of, a lot of negative press. And obviously the fans didn't know me at that point. So you can understand people that don't know you looking at a convicted, convicted drug dealer working at a football club. I could understand their concerns, but... I think the club was in such a bad state behind the scenes. It didn't actually, I'd done a lot for the club. Like I worked a lot of hours. I'd done a lot of sacrifices. I would be in the club at eight in the morning. I'd go to my building site at six in the morning, come here at nine in the morning, leave my site at eight, get here for nine. 
help out with training, get a quite big eating head back. So I had sacrificed a lot at that point in time. And I think the people at the club seen me as an asset, maybe six months, 12 months into this, they seen me as an asset. So around the time of these articles coming out, it was probably around the same time that the people at the club were seeing me becoming an asset for the club. Because I used to work a lot of hours and I used to do, I was always the unpaid hours at that point, but I'd done a lot for the football club. So I think they've, listen, they've been fantastic for me. They stopped by me, but in the early days, it wasn't as if when I came in the club, it came out, the story came out straight away. It probably took a year or so before the story got out. And by that point, like I was in the club, I was working and the people at the club knew me. So they, they stuck by me because they, they knew me as a person and they knew what I was bringing to the club on a daily basis. Imagine that can be quite hard if people know you as a person, stick by you and rightly so, that tends to be the case. When you've got people outside of it who's never met you for longer than 10 seconds maximum, having all this judgment. Uh, that, that's a hard bit, but then at that point, you've got to take yourself out of the situation. Like, don't read social media, don't read the newspapers, because like, I, t- I try and explain this to the players. You win a game of football and the players jump on social media. Somebody, oh, you were brilliant today, well done. They take that pat in the back. But see, come Monday morning, the players forgot about the positive reaction they've had from social media because I've went on it Saturday night. There's been a few comments. You've done really well. Well done, well done. Come the Monday morning, they've kind of forgot about it. But see, if you get beat and you've had a bad game, I don't think the negative comments leave the player. Like on a Monday morning when they come into work, they've still got that negativity hanging over them. You maybe then go and get beat the next game of football and they have a bad game. And I think social media can be it's a really neg it can be a really negative experience for young players. So I kind of took myself out of that environment. I wasn't interested what fans were saying in forums. I wasn't interested in newspaper articles. But I, I do believe people are allowed an opinion. And I've made my bed, so to speak, so I don't mind lying on it. Like, I don't mind that. I don't mind people having an opinion of me, even though they don't know me. I don't really mind that because I'm the one that's went to prison and it's I've, I've made my bed, so I'll lie on it. Yeah. I'm trying to think the best way I could I could word this question. Um, I'll try my best to, but um, obviously I don't want to touch on the past too much because I think I'm all about moving forward and I think obviously you're making a great success of a, a great job at the minute and I think I think you're a really good example to a lot of people and I think that's the reason why a lot of people want to speak to you and it took me a few weeks to get you to sit down with me but um, when you were I think promoted to assistant under David Hopkin um, there was a player that came in who's obviously been on the show as well Deck uh, Gallagher who's a fantastic example of, of someone who can turn your life around um, how much did it help uh, both of you have been in part of the team having sort of a shared experience, although different situations, sort of a shared experience in ways. I think it helped Big Decky in the sense that I had been through what Decky was going to go through. So I'd been at that point, I can't remember, 2014, 2016, I think, around 2016, De- Declan came out of prison, 2016, 2017 maybe. Um, so I'd already, at that point, I'd been out of prison for six, seven years. So Declan had all that to go through. So I think the club had been really open-minded with me. And I think obviously my experience allows me to be open-minded again. So 
I was more than happy to welcome Declan in. David Hopkins, who was working as a manager at the time when I was an assistant, had got to know me. So Hoppy wasn't the type of person that was judgmental either. Hoppy wasn't a judgmental person. So I think that helped Decky probably settle a, a little bit. Um, but again, Decky's got to take fantastic credit for what he's been on and done in his career. I think uh, I'm delighted for him. I keep in touch with Decky. I think I think actually that strip behind me is Decky's, Decky's Scotland top. He won his first game for Scotland. Although he was a signed Motherwell player at that time, it was his... It was, I think Livingston Football Club played a massive part in getting Declan out. Declan, first and foremost, played a major part in getting Declan a Scotland court. I think Livingston played a big part in that as well. It's funny as well because the, I think the first game when he came back, when he'd scored, which we, we touched on when I spoke to him last year, um, you changed the formation to a, a three at the back and now he's a three at the back of Scotland. Do you want to take any credit for that one, David? <laughs> I'll be honest, I'm like, see, see myself... I'm a big believer on players make formations. Mm -hmm. I don't understand the, how many times you turn the telly on and it's square pegs, round holes. What's he doing there? But don't get me wrong, I've done it myself, right? I've done it myself. But Declan came out, he, Declan came into trainways on the Thursday. Can't remember the exact dates, 216, 217. Came into trainways on the Thursday, just been released on the Tuesday, I think. Maybe even the Wednesday, to be fair to him. So we were a 4-4-2, 4-2-3-1. And uh, Declan came out, it was the Thursday train, was the Thursday train, was the Friday. We got the bus in the morning, we drove to Peterhead and we threw big Declan into right centre half and we went to a three because Declan came in the team, he's six foot three, he's a very good defender, but he's very good in the ball, Decky. Decky's biggest asset for me is he's very good in the ball. Um, he's a good football player. And um, we changed the shape to a 3-5-2. Declan played right centre-half. Craig Halkett played the middle centre-half. And Alan Lifko went to left centre-half. And Sean Crichton, who was playing right centre-half, went to right wing-back. And for that moment onwards, we just kicked on as a team. So Decky had a massive part to play in the shape. But it wasn't an ingenious, a genius moment or anything like that. You were looking at it going, right, I've got, actually got four fantastic centre-halves. How do I get them all on the team? But how do I get one games of football and still play attacking football? So we changed the shape to a 3-5-2. And we went on to romp the league that year. Went on to absolutely break loads of records from previous Livingston teams. The most unbeaten run, the most goal scores, the least goals scored against, things like that. We went on an incredible run. And that 3-5-2 system carried on into the championship the following year. So we won League One, followed that system and shape into the championship the following year, and we got back-to-back -back promotions and found ourselves in the Premier League. So what, mm -hmm. what a, a massive part Big Declan played in that. When you talk about um, Livingston's recent history, after sort of the administration and stuff like that, it's been totally upward trajectory and it, it continues to do so really but without wanting to touch on disappointment too much obviously there was the the cup final last month which understandably yeah. is disappointing we're losing the cup final no one likes to do that but before we sort of discuss the result um how proud were you to lead Livingston out that day even though there was no fans I don't want to sound as if I'm I don't know how to explain that arrogant but at that point in time, like walking out, I was, I was, it was a nice moment. It was a nice moment, but 
I think by not lifting the cup, it kind of makes the, po- the moment a wee bit bittersweet. Mm-hmm. In fact, I don't know if that resonates with you, but I think I could probably look back in that with a lot more joy if we lifted the cup. So it kind of dampened the occasion slightly. I walked out, I remember walking out with the boys and I was just desperate, desperate for the club to win a trophy and desperate for the players to come out of that as winners. Um, not so much for myself, it was more about the collective. So I don't want to sound arrogant and I don't think I can take too much from that, if I'm honest, because ultimately we left the stadium that day as losers and that's something you don't want to do. But on the flip side of that as well, you know, looking back on the game, as you said, sometimes you come back from that and you think, well, we didn't win it, so it doesn't mean as much. And I get that. I've been to finals as a fan, so I can imagine it's exactly the same. But how determined does that make you to turn that disappointment into something where it can be a success and you can look back and say, I learned from that game and now I've got what I always wanted? Yeah, yeah, I think well, we spoke about it collectively as a group. I think our first objective after losing the cup final was securing top six. It took us probably three or four more games later than what we hoped it would have done. But it's football and you've, you've not got any divine right to go and win every game of football. So the objective, the short-term objective after the cup final was securing top six. Now, the short-term objective is trying to get a European spot. So I think if you'd said to me at the, end, uh, the start of the season, you're going to get to a cup final and finish in the top six, I'd have bit your hand off and any of us would have bit your hand off for that. The objective, as us, and what it's always going to be collectively is to finish 10th, 10th or better, and stay in the Premier League because what I think, personally, we've got the lowest budget in the Premier League and it takes a lot of energy every single day, every single week, every single month from everybody to continually punch above your weight and defy the odds. It's, um, it's a, lot, a lot harder than what you probably get credit for, if I'm honest. Talking before in the, the start and the intro of the show, and I, I said you're one of my favourite managers in Scottish football. Now, I've openly admitted I'm a Sunderland fan. I'm also very fond of, of Rangers, I will admit. Um, living in Glasgow for as long as I have, I have picked the side. But there's a reason that, you, you know, you're one of my favourite managers. Yes, the story's great. I love the story of redemption. I love that. But take that aside. You look like you enjoy yourself, and there's something about that. But how much have you enjoyed this season with Livingston? How much have you enjoyed yourself? To be honest, I've enjoyed every season since... Probably Hoppy, David Hopkins and I took over. Because uh, the first year we were at 2014-15, we were in the championship. We held on by the skinny of our teeth. It was actually, I think it was into the last 15 minutes of the game, we scored a penalty. We got given a penalty. We, Danny Mullen, got a penalty. He's at the lead boys at Dundee now. We, Danny, went down. And Kyle Jacobs actually stopped the penalty away that year. We held on by the skinny of the teeth. We got relegated the next year. So that had been 14, 15, 15, 16, 17 season we've been on an upward trajectory. And I can honestly say it's been extremely hard work, but it's thoroughly enjoyable when you see the success that you're bringing, everybody's getting together. And it's that collective effort from everybody that at the end of the year, I think when you go on holiday, I'm not a big drinker to be honest. So when you're sitting at the, sitting at the side of the pool and, Myself, I'm normally sitting at the back with my laptop out with a cup of coffee and you can sit and reflect on it. So it's been an upward trajectory, 2016-2017 season onwards and I've enjoyed every single minute of it. 
Awesome. Uh, final question. I know none of us have a crystal ball, but um, in an ideal world, what, what's the future for David Martindale? Ideal world, the future for David Martindale is Livingston. I've got four or 5,000 season ticket holders on a seasonally basis. My budget can probably go up to then around £2 million, and that would let me recruit. Um, I'm not going to say better players because I think I've got fantastic players at the club. But when you've got that wee bit more money every year, I'm probably losing six, six, seven, eight players every year. There's probably three or four of these six, seven, eight players that are integral parts of the team. It'd be really nice, extremely nice if we could try and keep the players here and stop them moving on to at which I don't see them as bigger clubs, but financially they're bigger clubs. So it'd be incredible if we could maybe be hitting four or five thousand season ticket holders on a seasonally basis and my budget could go up, which would then allow us to probably build a little bit more stability into the team because you're you're doing a lot. Of, we do a lot more recruitment every year than what I would like to do. There's a high turnaround of players every year. And that's something that I don't always think you can get right. I don't think you can always get that right because recruitment's recruitment's not a a plus B equals C. I don't think that's how recruitment works. Recruitment's got a high risk involved within it, and it only takes a couple of bad signings within these six or eight players, and you could be at the bottom or end of the table. So a wee bit of stability increased season tickets. Perfect. I've honestly loved the chat. Um, I hope you've had a bit of fun as well, mate. But um, thanks so much for giving me 45 minutes or an hour of your time. It's absolutely bang on. And I wish you all the luck um, for the rest of the season and beyond, mate. Thank you very much. Thanks very much. Thank you. Bye-bye. My pleasure, mate.